week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 1927, Ottavio Battecchio was found lying on the side of the road near his home in Italy with severe head injuries and he died in hospital 12 days later. Battecchio won the Tour de France in 1924, becoming the first Italian ever to do so. He defended his tour crown the following year. He remains the only Italian to ever win back-to-back tours and he is also the only Italian winner of the tour to have never won the Giro. But he will perhaps always be remembered for the circumstances of his death rather than the successes he achieved as a cyclist. To this day, the reason he was found bloodied and unconscious on the side of a pan-flat road beside his bicycle in 1927 remains a mystery. There are a number of theories about the true circumstances surrounding Batechia's death, none of which have ever been proven. One is that it was simply an accident, that Batechia had fallen off his bike due to dehydration or illness, or that he couldn't free his feet from his toe clips, and that he fell over and smashed his head on a jagged rock. However, his wounds were said to be far too severe to have occurred in this manner. Another theory is that Batechia, out on a long training ride, had run out of sustenance and was hungry. He wandered into a local vineyard and took some grapes, and was ultimately killed by a crazed farmer who struck him a blow to the head with a rock. But in June, there were not likely to be any ripe grapes in a vineyard. A further theory places Batechia at the centre of a political struggle. At the time in Italy, Mussolini and fascism were on the rise, and Batechia had failed to publicly support them. As a result, the fascists have been blamed for murdering Batechia for the failure to support the party. To complicate matters further, a peasant on his deathbed a couple of decades later admitted to the murder, but was unable to provide sufficient detail to be truly convincing. At this stage, it is almost certain we will never know the true circumstances of Batechia's death. Welcome to this, episode 12 of This Week in Cycling History, with me, John Galloway, and my co-host... Killian Kelly. Well, Killian, Otavia Batechia, um, a, a sad death for a great man, and, and still shrouded in mystery after all these decades. Yeah, it's a strange one, all right, and um, it, it's you know it's it's from so long ago, and yeah, you know we're just we're surrounded by media these days, like you know the internet and Twitter, and and uh, you know we we get to watch an unbelievable amount of cycling on TV, and and just we're we're just surrounded by all these news outlets, and uh, this kind of thing just just wouldn't happen these days, you know. We we know everything about everybody, to, well to a certain extent. And uh, th- this whole um, kind of throwback to the idea that there can be a myth or or a or an uh, you know one of these unexplained stories it's uh, it's kind of lost in the sea of information that we're in these days and uh, the, 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 but these stories are are really um, interesting and uh, yeah, yeah, you know the the fact that we never will know what happened um, it adds to the romance of the event as well but I think. A thing that's easy to forget with these guys, particularly, you know, back in the kind of pre-war and just post-war era, is they were young men. I mean, when he died, he was 32, and that's three years younger than Cadell Evans, who won today's stage of the Dauphiné. So, you know, it's still a young man, and it's 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 a life wasted. But there were tales of people claiming to be hitmen who'd had him, and a farmer who, you know, as you mentioned in the thing, was angry because he stole grapes. But... Um, I mean, he, he was a hell of a cyclist. He'd been illiterate, and when he went and rode the tour, I saw on, when I was on Wikipedia today, his only phrase of French was, no bananas and lots of coffee, thank you. So Yeah, and, and the circumstances after his death were kind of controversial as well. He, he um, You know, one of the stories goes that he was... Uh, 
you know, murdered by fascists because he, he didn't support the fascist party. And then the story goes that after he was killed, that the fascists kind of claimed him as their own. And because he was so, he, he was a big uh, star of, of Italian cycling, they claimed him and, and basically organized his funeral and uh, mm-hmm. claimed him as one of his own, which if, if you know, if, if it's true that the fascists did kill him, that's, uh, you know, it's really poor taste for him to have done that. But, but like, I, I mean, obviously we don't know circumstances but uh um i, I I've, I've talked before about this book which i'm still in the middle of and really taking my time over it's called uh pedaler pedaler by john foot and uh, or actually um as my italian speaking father pedalare yeah sorry yeah pedalare pedalare i believe yes yeah, <laughs> pronunciation so sorry about that but um it, it, it's it's really this fantastic book and and usually when i'm writing these getting these pieces together for the show um I, I, I try and get info from as many sources as I have at my disposal, but I, I must apologize for pretty much just taking this one and, and also the next one from uh, th- th- this fantastic book. And uh, it, it just, uh, it just, just to blow its trumpet a little bit more, like, it, it, you know, these tour books you get, which um, they go, they just go through Tour de France kind of year by year mm-hmm. and they, what happened and they can be you know they're they're a great source of information and and you know i i do read them but they can be a little bit tedious whereas this one it it, ju- it doesn't try and do that it, it sets everything in a kind of a political context and it's uh it's just it's it's fantastic read if anybody wants to go out and buy it it's, it's really really great for people who i mean for people who don't have an interest in the the earlier days of the sport um the name bateki has also crept, crept up quite recently because um, he, he worked with Teodoro Carnielli to start his own company, manufacturing racing bikes. And under Carnielli's family, Batecchi has become a far bigger company than, than probably he ever imagined. And in my brain, it's completely welded together with uh, Greg LeMond's win while he was riding for ADR in the 1989 tour. I mean, just iconic bikes as well so it's it's a name just like alfredo binder with his toe straps and everything that lives on long after his desk and people probably look at batechia and know nothing of the man so that's part of the reason we're here isn't it to, to shine some light on where these names come from yeah yeah and it's great to be able to do that and just just one further fact i have about him he was also the first italian to wear the yellow jersey in the tour de france as well which is a, another claim to fame other than the fact that the, the, the circumstances of his strange death Anyway, I mean, Batechia, there's very little against him. I mean, he seems to have been a genuinely nice bloke. Um, the next one, another Italian great, but a bit of a shadow for his reputation. Let's have a listen. In 1948, Ferenzo Magni won the closest ever Giro d'Italia by just 11 seconds. Magni is most famous now for being the only rider to have won the Tour of Flanders three times in a row. And as a result, he was nicknamed the Lion of Flanders. But in 1948, he was the main protagonist in one of the most controversial editions of the Giro d'Italia, the story of which begins with a battle during the Italian Civil War in January 1944. It was known as the Battle of Vallabona, and it involved a group of fascist militia of 50 men who killed 18 partisans. It was said that the fascists were particularly harsh and that they tortured their victims and celebrated with a feast afterward. Ferenzo Mani was rumoured to have been part of this fascist militia at the Battle of Vallabona. And three years later, in January of 1947, he was put on trial, and if found guilty, he could possibly have faced the death penalty. But there was no conclusive proof that Manny had been an aggressor that day, and he was found not guilty. 
After the fall of fascism, due to Manu's undeniable connections with the party during the war and his links with the massacre at Vallabona, he was hated by many on the left. This brings us to the 1948 Giro d'Italia. Coppi and Bartoli had each won an edition of the Giro since it had resumed after World War II. As such, the Italian public were expecting a ding-dong battle between the two once more, but it never quite happened. Instead, Manny found himself in the Malia Rosa with just two stages to the finish. Coppi had just won two stages in a row and was less than a minute behind Manny. But after the 17th stage from Cortina d'Ampezzo to Trento, claims were made that Manny had been pushed up the climbs. He had lost just two and a half minutes to the stage winner Coppi that day. And to put this into perspective, Bartali lost over seven. Manny was claimed to have brought in help by the coach load and strategically placed people at the toughest sections of the climbs to push him to the top. Manny was not noted as a top climber and the claims of outside help enraged Coppi, who decided to quit the race in protest when it looked likely that he would overcome Manny and win the Giro regardless. Manny held on to his tiny 11 second lead over eventual runner-up Ezio Cecchi to win what remains the closest winning margin in the history of the race. The 1948 Giro d'Italia was the only edition ever where the eventual winner was booed by the crowd as he crossed the finish line. Well, except for last year. Now, in, in this week's Velocast, Scott and I talked about Teo Boas riding a couple of uh, a couple of stages of the, the Giro this year uh, with a fractured vertebrae in his back. And, of course, we've got Tyler Hamilton with his broken uh, collarbone and broken scapula and all sorts of stuff. But this was a proper hard man. I mean, with one of the iconic images of cycling. Taste great. Yeah, yeah. It was it was the nineteen fifty six Giro d'Italia, and he had crashed quite early on, I think, in the race. And um, he he he, de- he definitely broke his collarbone. I'm not sure whether he did any more damage. He, he might have broken something else as well, but it, he definitely had a broken collarbone. And there's a there's a really really classic photo of him uh, climbing up one of the mountains in the Giro. He he had attached an inner tube to his handlebars. And he's leaning down and he's chewing on it. Um, you know, he's, he has his mouth attached to the, to the inner tube and he's pulling on the tube on his handlebars because the pain was so bad. And uh, it, it, there's just this re- really great black and white image of the pain etched all over his face while he's chewing on this inner tube. And, uh, you, you know, <laughs> you, you wouldn't really get that anymore. It's a real throwback photo. No, I mean, totally. And he, in fact, broke it in stage 12. And there were a total of 23 stages in that year's Giro. And you know, you'd think he might struggle through the next one in a tube and mouth, you know, so that he could get the extra leverage that he'd lost by not pulling on that arm. But in fact, he finished in second place, only three and a half minutes down in Charlie Gaulle. Yeah. So, I mean, what a nutter. Yeah, it was... It was incredible feat. And, and like I said in the piece, like, I mean, he was booed coming over the finish line. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm sure at the time that was a, a combination of his links to um, f- fascism and also the fact that he was p- pushed up the climb and, you know, the, the, the favorite copy had, had decided to, to leave the race in protest. And, and it was a combination of those that he ended up being booed, but it, it was as if it took this crash in 1956, um, you know, eight years later to, to finally endear himself back to, to the to the crowd because they they took to him after that i think you know that they he he was he was showing this uh unbelievable courage and resolve to to get through the race like and like you said in second place i mean he nearly won the thing and copy himself i mean he was he was due to win the thing uh, when he pulled out um you can't imagine in the modern era somebody pulling out when they were in with a, a chance of something and a feet of peak could you unless they were for example called schleck 
<laughs> no, like I mean, you know, these days it would be far too. Uh, you know, there would there would be too much commercial value and, and financial loss incurred if someone was to do that. I'm sure uh, there would be all sorts of contractual uh, things being broken if somebody decided to do that. I I, I wouldn't. I would suggest it. It would probably never happen again. The way the sport is at the moment. No, but, absolutely uh, not. Yeah, but it, it, it's funny as well. Like we mentioned. Um, going back to a previous time where there wasn't tv cameras everywhere and uh you know just pushing and cheating you know i mean it went on all the time and uh i mean that's not to say that it doesn't still go on i mean there's only a certain amount of cameras that follow a race i don't know how many there is it's only maybe you know it's probably less than 10 and well, last uh, week we talked about there's a great stage of the zero where cavendish is you know struggling with the time limit and yeah. there are a Tifosi by the roadside shouting, Mark, Mark, and essentially grabbing him by the arse and hauling him up the hill. Of course it still happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, fair enough, the, the commissaires might penalise it if it's too obvious. But often they'll turn a blind eye because it's the difference between a rider getting in within the time limit and not. I think where it happens less is at the very front of the race because that's where the cameras are concentrated. Yeah, I mean, and and it does is like the the pushing that goes on now doesn't really affect winners. It just like you say, it affects the the strugglers out the back. Whereas back in the day, it it would have decided the outcomes of races much more uh, blatantly. Which um, you know, it's no bad thing that that doesn't go on anymore. <laughs> maybe maybe it's a little bit less interesting, but. Uh, um, I, I, I just one gripe I had last week as well when um, Ryder Hesedal ended up winning the Giro by uh, 16 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, in so many places, it was reported that it was the second closest Giro of all time, and uh, like I, I can, I almost saw how this fact happened. Like you know, somebody puts puts up on Twitter that oh, this was the closest Giro since Eddie Merckx won it in 1974, and uh, then suddenly somebody no Frank Sinatra then. No, it wasn't Frank Sinatra, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a bit of an in-joke, maybe. <laughs> but, uh, um, no, like, and, you know, this this fact gets gets put up that it was the closest Giro since Eddie Merckx, and then the next person comes along and goes, oh, it must be the second closest Giro ever then. So uh, they run with that in a story. All of a sudden, it's up on Wikipedia. Everybody else takes it from Wikipedia, and it, it kind of becomes one of these facts, in inverted commas, the way the same way Bernardino only rode Perry Roubaix once, and yeah, Lance thanks, Armstrong. Mate. No need to bring that up again. And and Lance Armstrong was the youngest ever world champion. You know all these things; they're just not true. But because they appear all of a sudden um, in in so many different places so quickly, they kind of just become accepted. And uh, it was just so wrong. Like Hesedal, I mean, it wasn't even the third closest; it was the fourth closest. And the fact that you know, uh, these these race reports, you know, whoever writes them or runs with them doesn't bother to check. It kind of grates on me. Like, um, I know myself, like, I write the odd race report um, uh, f- for an Irish website called Irish Pro Cycling. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's, there's some uh, races that, you know, they're very minor. Like, some some of the races that on post John Kelly would be riding in, in Belgium. You know, be, there would be no, certainly no live TV footage. And their main be no tv footage at all emerges you know maybe a couple of amateur mm-hmm. bits and pieces on youtube but in general you know you're you're, you're going by uh um just what, what's happened what's happening um you know out, out on the internet and uh it's it's i think it's expected for those races that you're able to take a bit of liberty as to how the race unfolded because unless you're actually there following it you, you don't know 
and uh, so you know you could add, add a bit of flowery prose or whatever and, and come up with your with your own story which is the way it was back in 40s 50s uh, you know when when manu w- w- was racing when there, were, there was this lack of tv cameras but when it comes to facts you know what the closest euro was i mean that's that's not uh, do you hear this passion in these voice people? This is what I have to put up with every bloody week. But these things, you know, they're not subjective or ambiguous. They're just, you know, just they're not hard to get right, you know, and people just don't take the time. It just annoys Chinese me. Chinese whispers. It's Chinese whispers. Yeah, it? it is, yeah. yeah. Now, we're moving forward to finish with a man who was a great performer in uh, what's now called the Criterium de Dauphiné, but in my head is always the uh, Dauphiné Libre. And that was Charlie Motti. And this piece actually pulled a lot of things together in my head, Killian. So I've got to thank you for it. Because he'd always been a rider that was on my radar. But he shot up in my estimation after you, uh, as I say, pulled a few disparate threads together. Let's have a listen about Charlie Motti. In 1989, Charlie Motti won the week-long Dauphiné Libre stage race. It was the second time that Motti would win this French race, as he had previously been successful in 1987. He would also go on to win the 1992 edition, and his record of three overall wins in the Dauphiné remains unsurpassed. In the 1989 edition, Motte laid the foundations for victory on the fifth stage, which finished atop the uber-steep climb of the Bastille in the mountain above Grenoble. Motte describes the climb of the Bastille. It is the Mour de Huy times 10. There is nothing like it. It climbs at 14% on average, with spots that are 18%. The Mortarolo or the Gavia in the Giro, They're nothing like the Bastille. Their slopes aren't even near as steep. You go into the red zone here like nowhere else. If you start with too quick a rhythm, then you will finish on foot. Finishing on foot is exactly the fate that befell Bernard Eno in 1977, the first year that the climb was included in the Dauphiné. When the Badger got to the top, he was less than impressed, and he screamed at anyone who would listen that having the climb in the race at all was ridiculous. In 1981, Eno got his own back by winning a time trial up the Bastille, and in doing so, he put the majority of the peloton outside the time limit in just three kilometres. In 1996, Miguel Indurain was using the Dauphiné as his final race in preparation for his attempt at becoming the first ever six-time Tour de France winner. Stage seven of that year's race ended on the Bastille climb, and accordingly, Indurain rode the entire 174-kilometre stage with a triple chain ring. He rode up the Bastille climb on the drops in the granny ring and sealed overall victory in the Dauphiné, his last ever road race victory. Due to its position on the cycling calendar, the Criterium de Dauphiné, as it is now known, is perennially used as a preparation race for the Tour de France. This has been the case going all the way back to the 70s when Eddie Merckx, Luis Ocana, Bernard Thévenet and Bernardino all won the week-long race before going on to take victory in the Tour a month later. And Charlie Motte was no different. In 1987, after he won the race for the first time, he went on to finish fourth in the Tour. After his second victory in the Dauphiné in 1989, he ended up in sixth place in Paris a month later. But Motte would forever be condemned to being an also-ran at the Tour de France. One of the major reasons for this is probably his attitude toward performance-enhancing drugs. Willy Voe, the soigneur who was at the centre of the Festina scandal at the Tour in 1998, was working for Motte's RMO team in the 80s. In his book, Breaking the Chain, Voe had this to say about Motte. We knew that he had the ability to win the Tour de France, but we didn't know what means he had to put at his disposal to help him get there. It was only as the races went by and we ate with him and spent time with him that we worked out what kind of fellow we were really dealing with. This was one clean cyclist. You could honestly say that Motte was a victim of drug-taking right through his career, of other riders' drug-taking. 
If he had used some stuff to help him recover, perhaps only now and then, the list of races which he won, already a long one, would have been considerably longer. Who knows if he might have won the Tour? It really has to be said that Charlie simply did not have the career that he merited. Now, as I say, Charlie Motti was somebody, particularly in an RMO jersey, that I'm, I'm used to seeing in um, some of the great tours, was a fantastic time trialist. But what you've highlighted there was that in an era which we almost universally regard everybody as dirty, all of his peers seem to regard him as a clean rider, and that's, that's worthy of comment. I mean, he's genuinely shot up in my estimation. Yeah, I mean, he was the, the Christoph Bassons of his day. Christoph Bassons was the guy on the Festina team that uh, everybody just re- was, he was renowned as being clean when everybody else wasn't. And, um, I, you know, I'm not suggesting everybody else wasn't, but, you know, he, he had this reputation as a clean rider amongst plenty of dirty riders. And, uh, you know, you know his rivals at the time would have been like Pedro Delgado and Miguel Indurain and Stephen Roach and L- Lauren Fignon. And, you know, all of those have been linked to doping in the past. And, and um, you know, for Mate to go through an era where it really was, um, you know, riders weren't only just doping, uh, you know, with, uh, with the kind of, I don't know, maybe lesser drugs like amphetamines and that. It was very much moving towards this uh, EP, the EPO era. Yeah. And, uh, you know, r- donkeys were slowly being turned into racehorses and, um, and, and, and yet he remained clean. And, uh, and, you know, his Palmares is fantastic, all things considered. And um, I, I suppose this is like... Stories like this is the is the the sad thing about drugs. You know, the, there's um, you know, there's two sides to every doping story. There's the 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 guy who dopes, and that is a sad story in itself as well. You know, it certainly after reading David Miller's autobiography, anyway, it, it kind of opened my eyes to that. It's it's not just oh these guys are evil and they they have just decided that they're going to do something terrible and dope. You know, it's a really really long and arduous it's a long arduous and i mean morally it's a gray area i mean there are there are people often who think they're doing just what they need to do we talked about bjarne narice you know openly talking about doping when he was in london this week and these aren't evil guys you know they're just people making bad choices and we shouldn't pour pour hate in them but we should celebrate people who make the right choices like motte yeah, and and like that, I mean that, that's what I was going to say. Like what what the one side of the coin is the, the guy who dopes, which is sad in itself. But the other side of the coin are, are the guys in the receiving end that don't dope. You know, and and uh, we'll we'll never know now. You know, all the results in Mate's day. Like how many races did he come? You know, sixth, seventh, eighth, and everybody above him had doped. You know, I, I don't know loads of them. I would say. And th- again, this is we talked about it last week. This is. This scenario might raise its head when, when or if, whenever um, Armstrong may be stripped of a of a tour or two. You know, you look down yeah. on the list and there's Basso, Vinokurov, Cloden, Ulrich, Manchebo, Sevilla. Yeah, you know, how far do you need to go down before you find a guy that is actually clean? And probably, I mean, they know themselves. I don't know whether they do know that everybody above them doped, but we'll never know. And that's that's probably the saddest thing about pe- people taking drugs is that there are these guys that should have won these races and and uh, and apart, but you know Mate had had a great career um, anyway and, and was but, perfectly but, equipped to win the tours of the time because if you look at him I mean he was up there in the climbs often until the you know 
the very death where he just got shelled out. But he was a fantastic time trialist. You know, he won the Grand Prix de Nation multi t- multiple times. Mm. Um, he won the Dior Normand with Terry Marie, and anybody that can hang on to Terry Marie's wheel at that time, let alone take a pull at the front, was clearly a decent yeah. time trialist. Yeah. So, you know, if he'd if he'd been refreshed to the extent that a lot of the guys who were dropping him on the climbs were, we could be looking at three or four time tour winner here. Yeah, I mean, you never know. And again, that's the sad thing. But uh, I, I thought it was an interesting little tidbit as well about Miguel Indurain uh, finishing off his last victory in the granny ring. <laughs> I, you know, for, for for somebody who's renowned as pushing massive gears throughout his whole career, like for him to, to pull out his last victory on on. on uh, on the the inner inner ring was uh, <laughs> I just thought it was a little bit a little bit amusing. I actually remember seeing that because it created great shock. I mean, there were there were pictures of it at the time because it was round about when you know Boardman was um, riding up the front along with the likes of Indurain. And yeah. you know we all we all looked at the pictures and went, "Is that is that a triple in the front?" And and sure enough, it was, and uh, it was. It was shocking at the time, but it it didn't do him much good when Push came to shove in '96. No, no, he, he, he. I think we might have talked about that before, but if we haven't, we'll, we'll we will soon. Because, uh, yeah, he he, uh, he didn't he didn't pull it out of the bag in 1956. But uh, when I started writing this, I, I sat down to write something about the Dauphiné, and I came across that Charlie Motte story. I thought it was interesting, but uh, I, I kind of I, what I meant to write about was um, uh, how winners of the Dauphiné do go on to do in the Tour de France, which kind of got away from me. But uh, it's an interesting topic as well. Like, there's only, you know, only a couple of guys have won both races in the, in the last uh, 30 years, which was just Lance Armstrong and M- Miguel Indurain. Yeah. They're the only two guys who have won both. And, uh, you know, Wiggins looked to be really on top form last year. He, uh, you know, obviously he won the Dauphiné, and, but he crashed out of the Tour and, and he couldn't show what he was capable of even before it got to any of the high mountains but um you know it's uh it's a very like the the giro tour double nowadays i i think has been dismissed as something that can't be done anymore in this uber unless, unless of course your uh your compadre or compatriot um Stephen Roach, who was bumping his gums a bit this week but yeah i think most sensible people think it's not a double that can be done reasonably yeah and and i i don't know like the, the as the years go by, cyclists are getting more and more and more focused on these singular races, and the the peaks that they they get they get to in their training are becoming even more narrow and focused because everybody else's is. And I I mean I don't know what the Giro Tour double might be out of reach. I mean maybe the Dauphiné Tour double is becoming out of reach as well. Like even and in those last 30, 30 years, Armstrong and Indurain have uh, have have won both. But like, um, the out of the other Dauphiné winners, like n- nobody's even come close to winning the tour. You I mean, know, probably I, the one that springs to my head is Iban Mayo, who you know was was dominant in the Dauphiné that year, and was talked up as you know the man who would bring Armstrong's run to a finish. Yeah, and then just he he was just embarrassing in the tour. He was. Yeah, he, he didn't finish in the end. I no. think that, but and, I mean, Armstrong, one of the ones he won, he, he reckoned the efforts that he put out in the Dauphiné meant it was his closest tour win ever. You know, he, he struggled to win it. That's right. That was 2003 when Ulrich was pushed him closest than he ever did. And uh, yeah, I mean, it does, it definitely, it must take a lot out of the rider. 
And, uh, you know, it's admirable that Wiggins is going for the win again, having done it last year. I mean, he obviously thought last year that he, he had the form in the tour and, to, you know, to go and do it again this year. It's, I, I really respect what he's doing and it's great that he's up the front. I mean, we, we had the first stage today and, and, you know, he's in the yellow jersey already. And, um, you know, if he wins it, great. But uh, I, I just I think it would be really interesting to see how he gets on in the third week of the tour, having... Uh, he he must be quite close to the peak of his powers at this stage of the year to to win the Dauphiné. Yeah, and, um, putting in you know, his best numbers ever, allegedly. Yeah, yeah. So you know, how long can he keep that up? It, it will be very, very interesting to see. Anyway, thanks for listening. Um, we're going to move to a fortnightly format here because, um, well, largely because both Kelly and I are, are are really busy with work in the real world, and we'd rather give you shows quicker than you expect them than than have you waiting for them. But for big events like the Tour, you can guarantee we'll be here more often than that. Uh, Kelly in, on Twitter is at Irish Peloton. See, I've learned it now, so I don't need to get Kelly in to say it. And I'm at Sofa Boy. Please follow us and please, please leave a review on iTunes because it really helps other people find the show. And meanwhile, um, we'll be back next fortnight in 14 days with episode 13. And thanks for listening.